listening to the Working Poet Radio Show, where we explore the working lives of creative people. I'm your announcer, Guillermo Canciobello, for the first ever Working Poet Radio Show in Miami for National Poetry Month. Our guests tonight are MacArthur Genius winner and poet Campbell McGrath, the mastermind behind the tattooed ballerinas Hattie Mae Williams and Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Carl Philippe Just. We're sponsored by the Center for Writing and Literature at Miami-Dade College and presented in collaboration with O Miami. Our producer is the Miami-based poet and managing editor of print-oriented bastards, Marcy Calabretta Canciobello. And now, for your listening pleasure, the incomparable Rafa Joe Harris. Thank you. Don't you bring me roses or no sweet hellos Not unless you're sticking around for good I called an old lover on the telephone Just to hear a voice I thought I knew But she answered sweetly that he wasn't home And I probably should have drunk and dialed you I've always been a little bit, a little bit, a little bit needy I need someone to give my kisses Need a boy who can beat me in a bar brawl The obvious contender here it's you So I don't believe in marriage I can blame that on my parents I love them but they effed me up for sure But still I am a dreamer You're a heavy metal screamer And I think the fit is perfect Might be worth it to explore You've always been a little bit, a little bit, a little bit dangerous That's the very best way you can Try to guard myself from falling down Be careful cause you'll probably end up falling down with me Lappin. 
So hey, that was some great music. Give it up one more time for Rafa and the band. Great stuff. Great stuff. So I'm just really thrilled to be here tonight, to be with you guys at the stage. If you don't know me, I, I used to, I actually live in Southern California right now, but I spent three years in Miami. And we started this show in Los Angeles. Uh, and I was doing it with my good buddy, David Gonzalez. And we are doing the LA Public Library. We actually interviewed some incredible people. Like Roxanne Gay, Richard Blanco, the executive producer of Key and Peele. And then I moved to San Diego and I got a call and I was like, hey, why don't you come down to Miami again? Do the show here. And I jumped at the opportunity. The center brought us down and took care of us and it was amazing. But I jumped at the opportunity because I spent three incredible years of my life in this city. It was an amazing city. I fell in love with Cafe Con Leches. I fell in love with the architecture. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the music. And I fell in love with just about everything, the beaches and the mangroves and the poetry. But you know what I really fell in love with was the community and the cultural vibrancy. here. You can see that happening right now with O Miami and P. Scott Cunningham. He's really changing the idea of what poetry is. Poetry is meaning something completely different. And I think that's exactly what this show is all about too. We are in that vein. Poetry is changing in the 21st century and it's more accessible, it's more fun, it's more entertaining, and I think it's even more real. Before we get into what this show is all about, I wanna ask here, how many people consider themselves a creative? Yeah? All right, all right. How many people here, whatever you're creative with, made that into your career? All right, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. You know, the question that I'm always interested in is, well, how do you do that? How does a painter become a painter? How does a poet become a poet? How does a graphic designer become a graphic designer? How does Shepard Fairey become Shepard Fairey? How do these things happen? How do you become a great, incredible DJ? Well, that's what this show is all about. It's about exploring that question. We're the Working Poet Radio Show, exploring the working lives of creative individuals, from the nanotechnologists, from the tech guy up in Silicon Valley making a bunch of money, from the poet who's most likely not making a lot of money. From the painter to the musician, because we believe that we're exploring the poetry that powers those individuals' lives. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. I was talking to Carl He's on the show tonight. He's the fantastic photojournalist, Carl Philippe Juice. Where is he? Where is he? So you know what he said to me about his photography? He said, you know, Joe, actually, I, I think of photography as poetry. And I asked him what he meant by that. And he says, it is when I can take a moment and I can freeze that moment and it still moves. It moves beyond the frame. It moves beyond the individuals into something larger. To me, that is what poetry is. It's something that an object or a story or a job that pops at the seams and becomes transcendental. That's what we're going to explore tonight. So we have a fantastic show tonight. We got Campbell McGrath. We got Hattie Mae Williams. We got Carl Philippe Juice. And we got the incredible Guillermo Cotillabello on the announcer. And then we got Rafa in the band, too. So... There you go. All right, so our first guest tonight is Campbell McGrath. Campbell McGrath, come on up. Give it up for Campbell. All right, Campbell, thank you so much for being here on the first ever Miami Working Poet Radio Show. Thank you very much, Joe. I've been a Miami working poet for a long time. I didn't even know we had a radio show, so I'm really excited to learn that. <laughs> the one thing that I want to ask you first is that when you were a kid, did you ever think you were going to be a poet? No. 
That's a very short answer. No, never considered it. I still, people, I still don't really understand that I am a poet. I guess I am one, but I never kind of, I never like signed on the dotted line. I am becoming a poet. It just kind of happened. You're, if you went back to yourself and met yourself as a kid and you told him you were a poet, what would do you think your kid would say to you? Well, I loved books. I loved reading. So it's not shocking to me that my life involves books, but I wouldn't have guessed that it was as a writer. I mean, I didn't know that if you loved reading books, you may well become a writer of books. And I mostly read novels and kind of regular stuff. I did like poetry, but it wasn't like I must have poetry. I loved literature. I loved books. So it's not absolutely shocking now that I see that it has happened, but I certainly never, ever envisioned it. So you're clearly a prolific writer. You've written, uh, what, nine books now? Yeah. Nine books. And the last one that you just wrote was The Kingdom of the Sea Monkeys. But I would love for you to tell everybody in this audience about your new book because it really relates to the creative lives of a lot of individuals, important ones too. Yeah, I've been working on this last book for about 10 years. I mean, I've been doing other things interspersed, not like every day, but I've but Certainly for the last two years, I've been just going upstairs every morning at 7 a.m. and sitting in my office and writing poems as many hours as I could. It's a book that is called, the title of the book is XX, because it is a history of the 20th century. It's a history of art and culture in the 20th century. So it's 100 poems long, one for each year of the 20th century, written in the voices of various artistic figures like Elvis Presley and Pablo Picasso and... Zora Neely Hurston and whoever else you might think of. And it's just been a kind of long encyclopedia-like process of getting this book written. And I finally, you know, sent it off to my editor about two months ago and, and it's done and it's coming out next year. And that makes me very happy. So who are these individuals that stand out to you, these creative? I mean, the, the 20th century is a big thing. I mean, how, how do you pick these and who stand out to you? Yeah, the 20th century. I mean, I, you know, I was born in 1962, so... I'm likely to be about 50-50 split between the 20th and the 21st century. I mean, unless I lived to like 200 years old or something, you know. So uh, I still have a lot of affection for the 20th century, but it seems as I look around the world around me to be rapidly receding, you know, into a kind of distant past, which I never quite realized. So it was a fascinating exploration of that time. And since I was born then and was part of the last third of the century, and I know that it shaped me, made me who I am, it was a kind of self-exploration as well as the history of these artists and stuff. And some people, like Elvis Presley, I knew I wanted to write a poem about Elvis. It Why was, Elvis, though? I mean, how is he poetic? Oh, that Joe, that's... He died on a toilet. Is that I poetic? Know. I don't know how you can ask that question. I mean, you know I love Elvis, but I mean, I'm just trying to hear, how, hear what you think. Well, uh, Elvis was existentially a poet. What? Come on. Elvis is the existential poet of American, of the 20th century America. All right, you got to back that up. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the culture backs it up. I mean, what other, what other American cultural figure is like worshipped as a kind of semi-godly figure? Kim Kardashian? No, no, it's different. That's different. Is Kim Kardashian poetic? Uh, I don't believe that to be the case, no. All right, fair enough. Uh, but Elvis was, you know, worshipped. I mean, I, you know, if you've, I, I, if you've been to Graceland, I mean, things are, you know, the, the, the time is passing. But I remember I was in Graceland on the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. And there are hundreds of thousands of people just standing there weeping. And they, there was a petition to have Elvis Presley made the first ever Protestant saint. And there's a kind of insanity about it, but it is about American culture. I mean, Elvis started as a real authentic cultural figure and became a kind of parody, et cetera. But anyway, that was a guy I knew I wanted to write about. 
but there were a lot of surprises. In, well, in tell the me about Picasso. I know Picasso was really important to you. Yeah, Picasso had not been important to me going into the book, but as I started writing it, I, I found him to be such an utterly amazing, fantastical, larger-than-life, crazy-ass kind of figure that I kept writing poems about him, and I wrote one, and then I said, oh, maybe some people can have more than one poem, and then suddenly there was like 25 Picasso poems, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just write a whole book about Pablo Picasso. I said, no, no, that's not right. I don't want to do that, but it was like Picasso hijacked the project for a while, for about two years. And then I, I seized control of it again and I kicked him out and there's about 10 Picasso poems going to be in it because you see his life over the course of the whole century. And um, he's just, you know, a, a kind of despicable human being and an amazing artist. You know, I heard you talk about him many times and I, and I remember what you said was, you know, and you pointed this out for students that, you know, he worked really hard at a very young age to learn the craft. And then he had this incredible transition where he just, his mind just seemed to explode and he went in a whole different direction. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that meant to you in this project? Yeah, time and again. I mean, I, it, it, for sure, for me writing this book, it was a history project. I wanted to talk about things I cared about, but I was also thinking about creativity, I mean, which I haven't done in my previous books, and the different kinds of courses great artists can take, whether they're writers or painters or musicians. And Picasso's was, you know, when Picasso was 14 years old, he was painting, you know, gallery-type paintings. I mean, Picasso never did anything his whole life from the time he was in elementary school but, you know, just become an artist. So that's amazing. He developed his skills, but then rather than stick with one particular pattern, he constantly reinvented himself. Every five years, every 10 years, he invented his, reinvented his art. And then he got interested in pottery. If he got into, interested in sculpture, he said, okay, I'm going to go over to like Brancusi's studio, have him teach me how to make metal sculptures. I'll study it for a while and then I'll make great sculptures. For me, that, the message there was, as an artist, first you have to kind of master the thing you want to do first you know, get your skills up to where you can actually do it. But then you got to be ambitious and you got to be restless and you got to say, well, I did that. What can I do next? Can I push it? Can I take it to the next level? Can I take it to a different place? And I think that's really important for the audience that are trying to be creative, that there's a moment where you change, where you come into yourself. Did you have a moment like that? Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of time, I think that um, that moment goes along with your education as an artist. I'm a big believer that artists can be educated. There's a lot of like, oh, you can't teach creative writing. That's not, that's not true. I was a student of creative writing, and I know how much I learned, and I've been a teacher of it for 25 years. But when I was a graduate student in New York City at Columbia University, I remember I was good at writing poems. I could write poems, but I, I don't know why I was writing about what I was writing about. It was, it was stuff that I guess I was told to write. And I suddenly had a moment where I said, but... Campbell, why are you writing poems about like a painting in a, in a gallery in Florence? If you were really talking about your own life, you would write about, uh, and then I had filled in the blank, a 7-Eleven. A 7-Eleven. The 7-Eleven appeared like a beacon in my mind, and I said, that's what you have to write your poems about if you want to be truthful to your own human experience on planet Earth, and that's what you should do. And so I wrote a bunch of poems about 7-Elevens, and that's when I went from being maybe learning the craft and talented to saying, this is my vision. This is what I have to talk about. This is what's necessary for me to express as an artist. Strange as that may sound. So you figured out, you found your voice, you found a way that you wanted to do, but then how do you go about turning this in to a career? What kind of jobs did you have along the way? What was that struggle like to get to where you are today? Every, you know, every artistic genre enterprise has a different answer to that question. Creative writers, poets, well, poets know from an early age that they're never going to make money doing their art, which is annoying, 
but also clarifying. You know, you don't, you don't mislead yourself to think, hey, maybe my next novel will be a bestseller and I'll be like Stephen King and then, because there's no such thing as a Stephen King in poetry land. So you know you're going to have to have a day job. That is, as I say, annoying, but you know it. And so you kind of are planning all along. You know, when I was in graduate school, I worked, you know, as I told you the other day, I worked as a dockhand at the 79th Street Boat Basin in New York City. And that was a great job, you know, because I was learning to be a writer. And that was a, a physical day job, hammering nails and tying up sailboats. So when I left there to go back to my creative space, my mind was really alive. My body was tired, but my mind was really alive. When you do kind of white collar work, it can kind of exhaust your brain. So when you go back to write poetry, your brain's a little dull and you don't have these great ideas anymore. But, you know, over time, you're probably not going to work hammering nails for your whole life. So I, I became a teacher. I didn't know that I was going to love being a teacher. I, I guess I really loved it because the first people I taught were elementary school kids. And that was so incredibly much fun that I said, oh, if this is what teaching is, I want to do it. You know, and these little kids were so much, I would have the experience all the time of, teaching my, my kids at PS 75, getting on a subway train back to my graduate classes at Columbia university, sitting through my class and saying, those kids are so much better at this than we are. Like the, the 10 year olds were so much more creative, courageous, risk taking, and just alive than the 25 year olds who were already kind of, you know, learning to be a little too careful, a little too cautious. So that was, that was for me really eye opening, And, and that's how I started teaching. So, you know, I'm going to ask you one last final question, then we're going to bring you back for crosstalk. But yep. you talk about we lose something as kids creatively. What do you think? Like, how do you think that happens? What beats that creativity at us as kids? Uh, society, I believe is what it's called, Joe. Oh. <laughs> it, that's not just American society. I mean, it's just human society. You know, you're forced to kind of conform and adapt constantly. I mean, that's kind of how life works. I think it's important as an artist to be really kid-like. I mean, to keep that part of yourself alive, probably not every second of your day, but you need to be able, I mean, I, I think I talk about this all the time when I'm teaching classes. I view, when I'm writing poetry, it's, I feel like I'm doing like a finger painting or playing with Play-Doh. It feels really plastic and playful and just surely enjoyable. You know, I'm not, I don't, you don't get uptight and worry, but what if the poem does this? What if it fails? Of course it's going to fail. Everything fails. Creativity is about failure. It's not about success. You're going to fail far more often than you succeed. And plus you only learn from your failures. If you succeed, then you didn't try hard enough. The only way you know if you're trying hard enough is if you fail, because if you could do it, then you haven't pushed yourself beyond your limits. Well, we're going to leave it right there and we're going to bring Campbell back. So advice, failure is good. That's good to know. Thank you so much, Campbell. Campbell McGrath's last book was called In the Kingdom of the Sea Monkeys. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Center for Writing and Literature at Miami-Dade College, and remind you that the Miami Writers Institute is returning in May with workshops in poetry, fiction, and graphic novels and comics. And now, more music from Rafa. <laughs>
So you you were just telling me that you love Rafa's music. I was. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Where did when did you first hear? Do you remember? Gosh, I have known Rafa for many years. I want to say like in the mid early nineties, perhaps. Yeah. Equally as beautiful as it is now, though, definitely. So, you know, I, I want you to tell the audience about Tattooed Ballerinas, and I want to tell you about your project and what you're doing. Sure. So I have a dance company. Um, I think of it more of an interdisciplinary dance company um, called the Tattooed Ballerinas. We focus a lot on site-specific work and also on reclaiming and reframing community spaces through, through the arts. Um, it was a company that kind of just got started out of the need um, for myself and other people surrounded by me to kind of create our own lanes and express ourselves how we want to through movement. So I got a line here, and I think this is kind of a beautiful line that really speaks very highly of you, reclaiming and reframing public spaces in our communities. You've touched upon that just now. What does that specifically mean to you? Yeah, sure. So, okay, in our world, in our society, we, there's structures. We have learned behaviors of how we operate and interact with each other in these either social structures or private structures or relationships. And I feel like it's really important for us to motivate each other or activate action to kind of reclaim, in particular, community spaces. Primarily in Miami, I've noticed that there's sometimes a lack of community spaces. And I think it's really important for us to kind of um, reconvene as a group of people, take over these spaces and have some ideas and conversations and make some art. So what are some of these spaces that you have? And yeah, give it up. That's, that's a great sentiment right there. Yeah. What are some of these places that you have reclaimed? I'm picturing you with a flag and just... I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a movement. You know, the Tattoo Ballerines is definitely a movement, I feel like. Our company, we have done things in laundromats, um, in, on tennis courts, and subways. Wait, were people doing their laundry at the time? Yes. And what, how do they react to that? Some people stopped. Some people kept going about their daily activity. No, they didn't just, they just kept doing their laundry? Sure. We've also activated some spaces like supermarkets, and some churches, things like that. What does that mean, activate? To charge with energy, to bring a new... Um, concept and movement to it. That's what I think of when I think of activating a space. What was it like when you went to Target? Right. So, um, what did you call it? Target? Isn't that Tar what people do? Tar yeah. Tar yeah. My friend, a really good collaborator, his name is Christian Salazar, aka Datamouth. We have this project called the Miami Sites Miniseries. So we go guerrilla style around different locations in Miami and film and dance. And we did a project in Target. And luckily, we did not get kicked out, which was awesome. And we just kind of, the Tattoo Ballerinas and I, we just kind of took over the space. And some of the people who were shopping around were a little bit kind of like, what's going on? But I think, I think sometimes we're preconditioned to kind of just like ignore the, the weird, right? Or like if it's not, doesn't make sense, I think some people kind of just go about their business. But there were some people who were just engaged and kind of just being like, what's going on? Yeah, I knew you were in New York for a long time. Is this project one of the reasons you came back to Miami? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Miami Sites Project is a huge part, a huge reason why I came back to Miami, um, particularly because I'm born and raised here. I'm a product, yes, made in Dade, represent 305. Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up a lot in New York, but I feel a sense of responsibility to be part of what's happening here. Um, I still have family here, I have young nephews, and uh, I want to be part of the change. So this Miami Sites Project was a vehicle um, it was a support system for me to come back and reclaim some spaces here. 
What's inspiring you about Miami? I, the, the, the freedom here, the fact that there is a lot of space and the fact that there is um, still not so many rules yet, I think is a, is a, is a really awesome thing about Miami. And also the, the bubbling of this community and artistry that's happening and coming together um, is really appealing about Miami. Tell us about where you grew up and how that influenced this project. Sure. Okay. I grew up in North Miami. Yeah. North Miami. Like, I'm like in that area right outside of Miami Shores, right outside of Liberty City, right outside of Opalaka. I'm in the middle of that. Growing up there totally influenced me because it was a real community. It was, you know, back in the 80s when you were neighbors, we had like cookouts, um, you know, so that sense of how to interact and be a part of community really influenced my work. Why was it hard? I read somewhere, I forget what article it was. You said it was hard to grow up in Miami too. So it's another side of that coin. What was that all about? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm super privileged, right? You know, I went to an arts high school. I had support. Um, Yeah. All right. (laughs) Privileged. So I want to be careful when I say it was hard for me growing up in Miami. Um, I think more so it was hard because Miami is very fragmented, right? I think the way that the city's laid out, it, it, it appeals to segregation. It, it's a little bit. Wait, what do you mean by that? It appeals. Mm, okay, the history of Miami. <laughs> I'm not going to go into that whole spiel, but um, the way the city was laid out was to keep certain demographics away from other demographics and to make things traveling a little bit more difficult. So I, I definitely felt that when I was growing up and, and, and felt racial tension growing up. But then again, I was very privileged in the sense where I had a, a, a beautiful mother figure who. Um, took me to different areas and I was a part of an arts high school program. So like I was totally like um, I was privy to a lot of different cultures, but it was work. I feel like in Miami, you have to work to be together with people. So that's your work to be together. And so your dance, well, the tattoo ballerinas, it's a, it's about social justice then. But talk to me about how this is about social justice by reclaiming this space and make it your own. How is that related to social justice? Hmm. That's a good question. And I think um, at this point in my practice, I'm still experimenting and figuring out ways to promote social change. Um, and this project focused in that because I really would like to motivate and activate people to um, make their own noise, uh, give truth to their own narratives. Right. And once we start telling our own stories and coming together and either when we whether we do that through music or poetry or dance or art, I feel like that's how you start promoting social change, social justice. When you get together as a group of people and you take it to the streets, you have a moment where you recognized that what you are doing is promoting social change, that there was a recognition that this is working. This is activating the community. This is breaking down barriers. Was there a moment like that for you? That's a really good question. Was there a moment? Um, I can't particularly place a specific moment. I've had many interactions with people after doing a site-specific piece or after doing a performance where people have come up to me and told me their stories and also told me what they have done by being inspired by what they've seen and how they've gone and perhaps started an organization or how they've collaborated and worked with, young, with the youth. Um, so maybe that, in a sense, is how... Um, my art has promoted or activated other people. Very cool. So what I'm really interested is, you know, you also have a professional, well, you have another career too, right? And you work with Nickelodeon. Is that correct? Right. I I have worked with Nickelodeon, Nick Jr. I was the dancer for um, 
two cartoons, the Backyardigans. Wait, so I, you, you guys know Backyardigans, okay. So, <laughs> so walk us through that. How, what is this job like? Okay, first of all, that was one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a part of it all seasons. I was a dancer for the character Uniqua. She's the pink one. Woo. And then I also was a dancer for the Bubble Guppies. So that was a thing of like, you know, you audition for it, do the job. And but wait, I don't really. So I, I watched a couple clips before. I, I haven't watched the show, honestly. It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon, yeah. So how, was, how does this work? Do they put like a, I don't know. Right. No, it's a good question. So um, there's two ways it can work and do the whole green screen and the whole like um, the sensors on your body. Because this is a new animation, it's like very bubbly and like bright colors. They, they videotape our movement and they use a computer program to morph it. And they also have animators animating on top of that computer program to take our movement and transform it onto the character. That's kind of poetic in itself right Absolutely, there. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to bring you back on Crosstalk. Give it up for Hattie one more time. Thank Thank you you so much. See more of Hattie Mae Williams and the other tattooed ballerinas on her Miami Sights miniseries. Tonight's episode is presented in collaboration with O Miami Poetry Festival. Keep an eye out for their poetry pirates on the Miami River tomorrow. And now, our next guest, Carl Philippe Just. Woo, give it up for Carl. Carl took some photos tonight, and I can't wait to see him. I got, he took them on my camera, too, so I'm, I'm not going to pretend like they're my photos. I'm going to give you credit. Don't worry. You know? So, hey, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. Huh? Great. That's A lot awesome. of talent on the stage. Yeah. And in the audience, too, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I read somewhere you initially wanted to be an engineer. How did you go from engineer to... F- Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist. I never won a Pulitzer by myself. I won with a team with the Miami Herald. Number one, let's clear that up. But um, I think you just got to do what you love. I don't love rulers. I don't, I love numbers, but I don't want to sit down and look at them all day. And um, I didn't choose photography. It chose me. It was one of those things. It was, it's been a long romance of over 25 years. And um, we have our Sometimes it's tough, but um, she's forgiven me and she's celebrated me. I've celebrated her and um, we have stayed together since the last 25 years. Well, since you're going with this metaphor here, when did you guys first meet? Oh, I think when I first opened my eyes, I saw her. Yeah, I was born. I was born. I was born to be a photographer because as a photographer, you really... It's not that you depend on your eyes for information. It's that your eyes verify what you feel. If I heard Feeling Good by Nina Simone, I could see the pictures. If I heard Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, I could feel and hear the, the, the moon off a, a placid water and, and that urge to touch it. So to me, photography is, is just... It's the affirmation of, of, of my passion. So it's, it's, a, it's a good fit. Was there a moment in college that you were an engineer? I, I know there's a moment where someone opened you up to photography. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, between my transition of, of breaking my parents' heart and, and, and 
and leaving the engineering school into the uh, School of Arts and Science. I had shot a couple of pictures in high school from a, uh, a trip. And uh, for some reason, I had it in my, my bag that day and I, and I ran to a friend and he, he, he says, hey, what, are the, what, are those, what are these pictures? I said, well, just pictures that I shot. And he looked at him and said, these things are great. I said, well, why don't you take a photo class? I said, George, come on, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, no, take a photo class. We could use you at the IBIS. You could shoot some of the football games. And I said, all right, I'll try it. So the first class I took, I kicked ass. I did. I kicked ass. And he was like, I hate you. I need, <laughs> why? 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 I, I just told you, I told you to take the class, not take it over. But, you know, I, I just loved it. I love the process you know, of seeing something that's, that's moving and seeing something that's public and then making it personal. What was that photo that you took? That first photo where you realized you were doing something beyond the image that you personally took. And I remember you talked to me about this one individual photo that you remember. Can right. you tell us about that? I think it was after Hurricane Olita. And I was flown to the Bahamas. I was a cub. You know, I was the last one to go because everybody else had, had taken the, the best trips. You know, I was the last. I didn't care. That's the thing. When, you, when you're passionate about something, you don't really care what position, what, where in the line you, you're standing. You're just happy to be in the line. So they flew me to Bahamas. It was my first foreign trip where, you know, I'm spending thousands, thousands of dollars. And I land in the Bahamas, caught a flight to, to a smaller berry island, Eleuthera. And there was this boy standing in, in, in the doorway, and he was looking at the devastation, the remnants of his village. And the way he was standing, it was not like he was standing like, oh, I'm so sad. Poor me. He was standing like, okay, this is kind of messed up. But, you know, it's life. I'm just happy to be here. I'm not in Haiti. I'm not, you know, running away from the Makuts and I'm alive. And, and I, I saw that image and I said to myself, you know what? Again, I thought I was a teacher. I became a student. And this pictures do that to me. It constantly reminded me how much of a student that I am. And I have master shit. I'm just learning. I'm learning every day. I want to talk about where you learned a lot of things. I want to go back. I want to go way back. And I want to know what kind of influence your father had on your photography. Your father is obviously a well-respected individual in this city, uh, made a lot of change. What kind of, this is uh, Pear Juiced, what influence did he have on your photography? And can you tell the audience more about your father? I mean, he did everything. He did everything. He was able to allow me to transcend my any condition that I might be in. He reminded me what this art thing is all about. I mean, he exposed me to, to music, to art. And it's not just my, my dad, it's my mom too. He exposed me to people. Uh, I remember multiple times, I one time asked him, why am I the only black person in this restaurant? He looked at me and says, why should you care? Why should you care? I mean, he taught me courage and, 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 you know, and it's not courage in taking the stuff that I shot in the war zones or, but the courage to ask someone, a stranger, their name after they lost their child. 
the courage to hug some, a woman who's been raped. The courage to say, I'm sorry for you. And I really am sorry that you're feeling this, but I have to do this job. That's what he taught me the most. But what he taught me even, even beyond courage is the ability to remain humble and noble at the same time. My dad said, yes, your crown has been paid for, son. Wear it well. You never have to feel like you should be ashamed of who you really are. You are the offspring of, of, of kings, your mother, your grandparents. And that was my shield. You know, going to the White House and being the only black person or going to Afghanistan and being, being, being confused as an as a Ethiopian and, and trying to tell them, hey, I'm from Haiti. And they're like, oh, Haiti? Ethiopia. Yes, Ethiopia. Because you don't argue with a guy who's holding a gun, you know, but he's taught me plenty. What do you, what, is there a moment that you remember about your father that might've involved work and photography that taught you and reflected upon that really influenced photography as social justice for you? Well, there's a couple, but I remember, I'm, I think you're referring to in New York City in the cab. I remember that's one of them. And I remember a couple others. Right. Well, well, you can go whichever direction well, you want. My dad, you know, being a migrant family, didn't have we didn't have money for uh, babysitters. Um, the Brady Bunch didn't live in our block, so um, he took me to work. And I remember sitting in Impala on the front passenger seat, and the car was in by the sidewalk, waiting for waiting for a um, a a customer. So a gentleman comes over. And didn't quite see my father, just saw the car and, and proceeded to enter the, 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 left, the left rear of the vehicle. And he sits down and my dad turns around and the gentleman was shocked because my dad was black. And he, he pretty much said, I'm not getting no damn cab with no nigger. So my dad, being who he is, got out the car, opened the door and told him he could exit closed the door, sat right back in the car, and looked at me. And that's when I, when I first heard that phrase, Sonia Crown's been paid well. He looked at me and said, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, son, that, that, is, that's, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Don't pay attention to this. Just don't. Because... You're more than your experiences. And that to me is, is part of my pictures. My, my images are not about the present, present or the past. They're about the capabilities, the possibilities. Now you're working in the photo collective. You got this, this organization yeah. and you're constantly working towards social justice. Do you feel that you're making a difference? I feel beaten down most of the time. Well, we know but, from Campbell that failure is good. Yeah, so. of course. Failure, failure is one of the biggest elements of success. And he's, and he's right. He hit it on the nail. If every time you've got, every time you approach something, you got it, then you didn't really work for anything. You got to put some, something on the line. That, that's going to do it for our interview right now, Carl. We're going to bring you back oh, with no, the whole no guest. Problem. 
And I, I just give it up one more time. How great of an interview. How great was that? Give it up for Carl. Carl Philippe Juice founded the Iris Photo Collective and has received numerous awards for his photojournalism, including a Pulitzer Prize. We'd like to take this moment to thank the stage for donating their time and space for this event and remind you that tomorrow, Swenelo is performing here at the stage at 10 p.m. And now, more music from Rafa.
now, welcome back Campbell McGrath, Hattie Mae Williams, and Carl Philippe Just. Give it up for Raffle one more time, huh? And the band. Oh, it, what, what's your name again? Mac. Mac, give it up for Max on the guitar. And Noah. And give it up for Noah on the drums. There you go. Yeah, you got a fan club over there. All right. All right, everybody, make yourself comfortable. And give it up one more time for our guest. It was uh, incredible. So welcome, welcome to Crosstalk. This is where we get all the guests together and talk about the working lives of their creative. Well, get them to talk. How about that? So I want to talk about Miami because this is really about Miami tonight in a lot of ways. And I want to know how Miami has influenced your creative life and continues to influence your creative life. You know, I've been here 22 years, 23 years, and I, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and I kind of thought, oh, I'll go back there someday. And that day has never come because I've never wanted it to come. You know, when, when the chances came to go back, I said, I don't understand why I would go back up there. So yeah, I, I have found Miami to be inspirational all this time. It's, you know, kind of what you talked about, Joe, in your introduction. The human community in Miami is so interesting, so different, so diverse. I mean, I thought for a long time growing up that I would like to live outside of the United States. And I travel a lot, but living in Miami, you have the sense of being both in and out or part of a kind of multicultural city that kind of is really a stateless, free city in a way. And that's something that I, I find endlessly inspiring. You talked about that a little bit, the freeness of Miami. It's, 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 I feel like people at this point can still, they feel free enough to do what they want to do, how they want to do it. And that totally encourages and inspires me. Also, the architecture and just the, the way that people unapologetically kind of own their identity here. I love that. I don't find Miami to be an American city. It's an international city like New York or Paris. Um, I've traveled all around the world and, and I always want to come back home. And you look at Miami, yeah, it's very segregated. There's, there's definitely some really bad components in segregation. But Miami and its parts are so pure in a way. And when they do come together, like tonight, it's magnificent. It is what Miami was once referred to as the magic city. It's a magical city. It's a place where anything is possible, where a poet can write a book about 7-Eleven, where a dancer can decide to go to McDonald's and give an amazing performance, and where a boy from Port-au-Prince can shoot kings or photograph kings, I mean, should say, and I shoot them. So that's, that's, that's amazing. You're all kind of mentors in a certain way here in Miami. You teach, you teach, uh, do you teach as well? I do teach, yeah. So what is your role as teachers in the direction of the creative life of Miami? How do you influence the next generation? Well, that's a great question. I mean, and I think it all comes down to that, you know, because we're all passing from this earth and we got to get that next generation up and running and pointed the right direction. And, and again, I think that's one of Miami's great, great benefits. It's a young, I mean, not just demographically, it is very young demographically, but just kind of in its mindset, it's about the future. It's about discovering. It's a place 
you know, I lived in Chicago for a long time, which I, I think is a great city too, but it's very much, it's, it, it is what it is, Chicago. It's not becoming something else. Miami is still in that process of self-discovery as a city. So human beings that live here feel open to exploration and, and kind of dramatic gestures. And as a teacher, you just say, Hey, listen, it, the world is yours. You, if you have the ambition, just go do it. Yeah. I think Miami is a very, it's still a very young and new city, right? For me, when I find myself mentoring young people in particular, I want to, I ask a lot of questions because I feel like what I've been, what I've been finding is that a lot of the younger kids now, they don't have a space to really ask questions and talk about things. They kind of are just getting fed the answers already, but I'm really curious about getting their feedback and be like, what do you think about this? Like, what do you really think about this? What do you think is really going on here? So that's how I mentor. I, I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. For myself, you know, I, I teach to, um, to an eight year old, to a 68 year old, but the approach is always about questioning identity Questioning is setting a foundation in which you say, well, these are the principles and, and, and you could take those principles and distort them. You could keep it real, but given, giving a person the option to express themselves freely and not judging them because you want them to be a photojournalist per se, but if that's what they want, I'm going to hold you accountable because um, I'll speak for myself. I, I take it serious. Because teaching to me is like sharing a secret that I want everybody to know. I think it's really important, too, to question the principles that we're learning. Like, why are these our principles that we're abiding by, right? I just want to... What are some of those principles we should be questioning right now? This is for all three of you, too. I mean, yeah, anything to, like, proper etiquette, to uh, gender relationships, to, like, anything. Like, why are we, why are these our, our learned principles and structures of how we're operating? Is that your role as a teacher to push them to ask those questions? And Absolutely. Move to question what we're learning and why are we learning it? And there's different teachers for, for, for different type of learning. Um, there are, in my role, I'm more of a student. <laughs> I'm more of a student because I learn more from my, from, from the people who pay me to teach them than I learn from reading books. Um, and yeah, we have to question everything. And, and I agree completely. But we also have to kind of get our heads around what do we want to be? What are we saying? Are you moving just to move or are you moving to get somewhere? And it's, it, neither one are wrong, is wrong or right. But I'm curious. I want to know how do you move? Makes a lot of sense. And so you, you mentioned this about, it sounds like you're talking about your work in a lot of ways too, that you're bringing people into, you're activating them, you're showing up in their space. You want them to ask questions. Is that true about all of your creative work that you're asking questions to push boundaries about your specific work? Well, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, girl. Well, photography is questions. A great image does not answer, doesn't give you an answer. It raises questions. Why the hell are people drinking that water? Why the hell that woman has a black eye? What kind of man would, 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 would do that to another person? Who goes and chops someone with a machete? Or another question, why is this woman smiling? Why does this person feel like they're the richest person in the world and they have nothing but, but a, little, a little home? And five kids. 
it is about questioning. To me, in, in great images, images that last or the images that don't answer, but images that draw and draws, draws us in and makes us want to question. I gotcha. Hey, I'm going to move along. I want to move on to this entrepreneurial side of work and the work that you do. And I wonder if in the 20th first century as an artist, because you're all, you, know, you all have a business in a certain sense. You're, you, you have to make money and you do it entrepreneurial. You do it as entrepreneurs in a certain sense. Is that a key to being an artist in our world today that you have to be an entrepreneur? You have to find ways to make money outside of your normal way. Well, I think like what you're doing here, Joe, with this show is a great example of that, to be honest. I mean, whether you're, I, I mean, I know you're not getting rich off this radio show. I hate to give anything away there, but, or probably costing you quite a bit of money, in fact. <laughs> but the point is that, you know, I mean, I work for the, I work for the state of Florida, so it's hard to actually call that entrepreneurial. I mean, I teach at FIU, but in my in act in my encounters with students you know i'm 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 pointing in the right direction but the point is yeah you need to find the space you need to build a scaffolding. We, we live in a country that is all about dollars and cents and paying the bills. They don't really care if you want to be a photographer, a dancer, or a poet. They're not going to put you in jail because of it, but they just don't care. They, try they may try, but you got to pay the bills, or then they do put you in jail. So you got to build the structure, whether it's teaching, whether it's entrepreneurial, whether it's you know coming up with some great radio show. That enables you to do your art to put your art out in the world, to influence, you know, whether it's people you're teaching or just the society at large. Yeah. I think also too, it's, is what is your definition of success? What is your definition of being rich? You know, like I'm super rich. I'm, I'm rich in personality. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think finding new ways and, 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 and experimenting in ways of how to make money through your art is totally possible. I was fortunate enough to grow up with, um, hearing the rhetoric that I can be successful and make money in dance and I have been fortunate to do that. Yes, it has been struggles, but like ultimately I can't really complain. So it, for me, sometimes when I hear people be like, oh, you can't really make money being an artist. I'm like, that's absolutely not true. You just have to find your niche and find ways and maybe be good at several things besides your only practice that you're interested in doing. I, and I totally agree. I, I think, you know, the, the need of having money really includes, include, it, it, it inspires your diversity in activity. I mean, one day I'm teaching, one day I'm curating, one day I'm producing my own body work, I'm working on a book, uh, I'm working on projects or foundations, but it, it always comes down to this, at least for me, I only speak for myself. It comes down to purpose. I would rather serve coffee at a Starbucks if I choose to do that I do it because I love it. I don't hell do it for the money. Oh, the money comes, but I do it because I love it. Thank you for those responses. We're going to end the show with this quote. And what we're going to do is we're going to pose a quote from Roka. And we're going to see if you agree or disagree. So, voice of God, please give us the quote. If your daily life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself. Tell yourself that you are not poet enough to call forth its riches. For to the creator, there is no poverty and no poor or unimportant place. Not to put you in a box, but agree or disagree. Well, can I say something? I think that's what Hattie just said. She said that, you know, she's rich because her life is rich. And so, you know, 
don't, don't blame the circumstances around you. You need to find it inside and, and understand what, what really matters. So I guess I agree. I, I totally agree. This is a beautiful struggle. You know, if, if it was easy, everybody could do it. And art, and that's what art is about. You know, art demands that you get tired. Art demands that you lose faith sometimes. But art also demands that you come back and that you believe. I, I was, when our interview, I, I don't know anybody on this earth that died for a fact. Speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Nobody puts a gun to their head for that. But the belief that you love your child, you're not going to let anyone harm that child. And that child is in harm way, you would be willing to jump? To me, that says it all. I totally agree. My short-term memory right now is playing tricks on me, and I may be contradicting myself, but... I feel like when I heard it twice, I was like, I don't really agree. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I mean, only because I was like, um, it's, it's a privilege to, to be creative and to, to be an artist, right? But there's some outside factors where like, okay, I am, I am bored. I am, I'm tired because of other factors in my life where I have to have four jobs, where I don't have the luxury of taking the time and making music or making dance. and da, da, da. So when I hear the words of like, don't, you know, if you're if you're not coming up with ideas, da, 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 that it's something that uh, blame yourself and not the situation. I don't really agree with that. I f we have to be super duper like empathetic to people who don't have the luxury of of making art. Let, let me tell you a story. And I, and I learned this just yesterday. I was watching the film Auschwitz. This part of the film where uh, 1. million people perished. And you go to the walls where these people were, were within minutes, days of going to a gas chamber, and they produced art. It's your day is that hard that you cannot find a moment to find beauty in the most hardest days. You, I, I can't tell you how many places I've traveled, and I say, how the hell can these damn people sing? That's where we got to leave the show, guys. Uh, I'm sorry. Give it up for our panel right here. <laughs> Wonderful conversation. I want to thank Lizette and the whole center and Marcy, who put was a person. Give it up for Marcy right there. She is the producer. She's been working her ass off. And Guillermo Canciobello, the announcer over here. And you go hear this podcast in maybe two weeks on the workingpoetradioshow.com. Give it up for our guests one more time, and, and Rafa's going to take us out. Thank you, everybody, for being here for the first ever Miami show. You have just listened to the Working Poet Radio Show, produced in collaboration with the Center for Writing and Literature at Miami-Dade College and with the support of O Miami. To listen to the podcast, be sure to visit theworkingpoetradioshow.com. And once again, back to the fabulous and wonderful Rafa. What, what? Uh. I like to sit and watch the rain.
Like the snow 